Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. And this week, my guest is Ronan Harrington. If therapy was a spectator sport, then you would be spectators because Ronan was almost like a therapist to me during this episode. What a profound episode. One of my favourites because it will personally impact me. The universal lessons drawn from Ronan's experience, especially with his health battles, I think are universal to you and to all the listeners of this podcast, all of our friends. Ronan is an alumnus of the University of Oxford. He has worked as futurist at the British Foreign Office and strategic lead at Rethink X, the think tank, and is notably known as the political strategist at Extinction Rebellion, which was his last post, and now works as client partner for the Resilience Consultancy Agency, Tough Cookie. Pulling from this experience, his talks are rare that they combine the big picture trends with the science of resilience and are packed with lots of psychological tools to manage stress, anxiety. This episode's all about the resilience and the decade of disruption. What a fascinating character Ronan is. We get a through the keyhole look into his life dealing with a chronic illness, and we even get that same view of me and the trauma that I've experienced. I really hope this personal, touching, emotive episode resonates with you. Please provide your feedback at Development by David. Share this episode far and wide with friends, colleagues, it would make my everyday. Thanks for tuning in, but for now, Ronan. Ronan Harrington, welcome to the Development by David podcast, my friend. How are you really? How am I really? Well, um, that's always a big question when I'm asked, how am I really? I think that uh, I'm... uh, I feel like a kind of a marathon runner stumbling over the finish line, but it's actually not quite the finish line. Um, I've got a cold and yeah, I feel quite run down. And then there's this tension between my need to properly rest and the never ending quest to win new business <laughs> uh, as lots of people are facing at this time of year. Um, but I've untangled myself from most of my work obligations this week and I'm going to take the long weekend off. So yeah, I have that feeling of like, as if I've just finished an exam and I'm just like, okay, I'm free. I'm free momentarily. It's almost like cleaning your mental RAM. Like if you think about RAM on a computer, it's like, for me, I've had a lot of exams recently, uh, with my profession and it feels like the entire ram is taken up by that exam so I'll, I'll be sitting in the cinema perhaps trying to unwind at the weekend whilst on a study plan and I'll constantly just have this reminiscent thought of oh I've got an exam in two weeks and it's it's strange when you bypass that that work cycle that like you mentioned earlier before we jumped on that you you almost feel like what was life like before uh, what was life like before this round was taken up and then once once you complete it you're like what do I do with this extra round that I've got mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I like that I like that a lot I mean for me it's just about like burdening and unburdening and what aspects of us are revealed when we unburden ourselves and when we genuinely rest uh, the poet David White has an amazing book uh, that I highly recommend called Constellations uh, constellation sorry um and it's about the meaning of words and he one particular one on the meaning of rest uh talks about rest as a stepping away from um or, or stepping into the uncoerced unbullied self 
which really resonates with me. You know, we spend so much of our weeks essentially cajoling ourselves forward to do all the things we have to do and actually to really listen to the body and what the body wants and needs is, um, it's really hard. It's one of the hardest things I think uh, all of us face in this culture. That's interesting. I recently listened to the widely popular Joe Rogan podcast with Yeon Mi Park, who is the North Korean escapee. Have you listened okay. to that at all? No, so I know Joe Rogan though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she speaks about when she was, um, when, she, when she first stepped into America and started socializing with newfound mates. And after five or 10 minutes in social company, she found herself having to nap because she had choice. She literally had choice for the first time. She could make decisions in supermarkets, make decisions at restaurants and make decisions uh, that impacted her future. But after five or 10 minutes of doing so, she was exhausted. And it's, mm, weird, how, it's weird how that's extrapolated um, through our own lives. How much of, I guess, our problems derive from living in a world now of abundance? Oh, you're throwing some fucking big questions at me. Um, so how much of our problems derive from abundance? I mean, it, like, I mean, that's a really tricky question to answer. Um, like on one level, I think that it's, we don't live in a world of abundance. If you materially, to some degree, yes, we have an abundance of a lot of some kinds of material things. Um, but, you know, I've, I, I heard an interesting framing this year that the West is uh, living in a spiritual famine and that there is a scarcity of belonging um a scarcity of connection and meaning and intimacy and all of these things that are uh vital for you know the complex biopsychosocial organism that is a human um are severely missing and uh you know we can be surrounded by an abundance of songs on spotify an abundance of food in the supermarket and an abundance of cheap products on amazon but you will feel the scarcity if you're alone at Christmas or um, you don't really feel like you've people that you can uh, genuinely be yourself around. And um, so, yeah, it's a big question, but at least that's a reflection on, on, on that. I'm going to revert back to this, this question uh, in a few questions time, Ronan. But before I do that, when I met you, as I always do before I speak with guests on the podcast, we have this kind of uh, pre-chat where we see if our characters align. And I just found you one of the most fascinating human beings that I've ever Zoom called, Ronan. Um, you're so multidimensional. You've got so many moving parts in your life. If I were to ask you who is Ronan Harrington in 2021, how would you answer that? Who is Ronan Harrington in 2021? Um, I um someone that is uh continually learning in every encounter how to be the person i was always meant to be and noticing how much of an old self very ambitious very success seeking very complexity driven novelty seeking uh runs the show and how unhealthy that is for me 
um, and uh, both kind of mentally unhealthy, physically unhealthy. Um, and I'm doing that work of almost in every moment um, trying to enact and kind of a, a new vision of, of who I am. Um, someone that's operating from a much greater degree of contentment and valuing stability. So there's a real, I think, deep transformation that is underway that I'm leading into. And a lot of it was, is, is kind of ultimately animated by a health crisis that I'm continuing to be in three years, three years into it. Um, and so kind of alongside uh, that, you know, daily act of becoming is uh, a daily act of relating to quite significant debilitating chronic pain um, and dysregulation of my body and not really understanding why or what I can do. And that is a crucible for essentially the soul's development, um, really pushes you to an edge beyond, I think most people can really fathom, like to be in pain, all the time in significant levels and not have answers is probably one of the um, worser things that you could do to a human. Um, there are, of course, much worse. Um, and so I'm kind of embracing that very unique life experience. Um, it's not something that I want. I rail against it. I grieve it. But somehow it is uh, inviting me into a deeper experience of this life. I'm, I'm reminded of a quote from Eccles, which is, um, pain falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will, we are given wisdom from the awful grace of God. Um, that's quite a mouthful of a quote, but for me, if I was to summarize who I am, it's basically someone who's walking that path. Wow, what a profound answer. Do you think if I were to ask, have asked you that question five years ago, it's because, I mean, I've looked at your, your previous job titles, um, which are so profound and so uh, impressive. Do you think if I asked you that very same question five years ago, uh, before your health crisis, you would have answered it by saying or relaying your job titles, attaching yourself to that? Um... Five years ago, I mean, I think at five years ago, I was uh, possibly tactically in the way that we all kind of display our credentials tactically to manage the impression of others. But I, st I think even at that stage, I was slowly starting to decouple my identity from my achievements. I was probably just at that point, uh, maybe it came soon after. But, you know, my, in my early 20s, I was really, really like in a so incredibly ambitious and needing to be seen and to make a name for myself. And there was something about actually uh, leading the political strategy for Extinction Rebellion and being a spokesperson and hosting their kind of global TV show that somehow scratched this egoic itch I had. Um, and then once I did that, I was like, okay, well, it's kind of done now. And now I feel kind of in the archetype of the fool. Um, I really, really, uh, you know, on one level have like, you know, serious work. You know, I give talks to big companies or I advise on strategy. But um, 
I'm also just never far away from the cosmic joke and, and the relative importance and also ridiculousness of most of the things I do. So, um, and I don't think I had that back then. I think back then I probably took myself a bit too seriously. It's strange because I almost see a future self-actualized version of myself in you. I, some of the facets of your earlier life, I'm possibly going through at the moment. I had a critical dilemma I, probably a year ago today where, so prior to th- this one event, I tied myself to a North Star and that North Star, which I wrote down as a positive affirmation every single day was to be recognized by society for my impact on communities. And a year ago today, I met Her Majesty the Queen and told her my own social mobility journey, the work that I've been doing in that space and the organization I work for, uh, their achievements in this space too. And immediately after, I had friends and colleagues say to me, oh my God, David, you just met the queen. How are you feeling? Expecting an elated response from me. And Rowan, in between you and I, and the listeners who are friends of the podcast, I felt very, very depressed. And that was the ego in me being suppressed because that North Star had been achieved so early on. And I just essentially thought, what's next for David? Because my ego had been satisfied by that one moment. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You know, if I was your therapist, (laughs) I mean, we're all each other's therapists, but I don't know you, but the impression that I get is that you're someone who is really um, kind of rising in uh, the ranks of recognition. Um, You know, it's a kind of a, you've got interesting aspects to your story in the sense of your background. Um, My understanding is you you, coming from um, a less advantaged background, being an apprentice, uh, which is like a lot of, societal narrative about working for kpmg having the kind of the leverage of that platform and then advancing social mobility um and um i imagine that must be incredibly gratifying um i know if it was me i i I would really my ego would feed off that and i'd also be animated by a genuine purpose um and yet uh, at all times um we have to check in with ourselves at the deepest level and be like, is this truly what I want, even though it gives me so much? And do I have the courage to let go? And it could be that, you know, you the best thing for you is to go traveling for two years or to go to a monastery or to to do nothing, but to find the freedom to make that decision, whatever that might be, which also could be to, to keep committing to your path, um, I think is the work of, uh, is the work that all of us have to be engaged in. And that can range from, you know, this relationship makes me feel safe, but is it right for me? This job means so much, but is it true to my beliefs? Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, where, where you are with, with, with that ongoing inquiry. I think I'm at the very start, Ronan. I think this conversation, this podcast will be the catalyst for that journey. And I'm excited to see where it ends up ultimately. And these are lessons that I presume you've learned from your vast experience. And to give the listeners context, because I got to meet you uh, a couple of weeks ago, they don't know your story. Can you bring to life 
I guess, your academic and employment journey prior to where you are now? Mm, yeah, so um, I've had lots of different jobs. Jobs doesn't really sit right with me, but um, maybe like many missions. Um, I worked as a, as a futurist for the British Foreign Office. Uh, I think around your age when I was 24, I think maybe a bit older than you. Um, I studied public policy at Oxford at the School of Government. Um, led the political strategy for Extinction Rebellion UK about three years ago, two years ago. Um, and generally have been um, in this space of looking at what the future of society and the future of politics in particular looks like. Um, with this interest in what spiritual, psychological and cultural transformation looks like as a political project. Because, um, you know, that's my sense of what we need to actually bring about systems change uh, and a new civilization. Um, so as part of that, I have been convening leaders across Europe. They could be MPs, heads of think tanks, people who have a certain degree of influence um, to explore um, this connection between spirituality and politics. Um, and then in between that, I've uh, done just like lots of different business consulting and uh, I'm a speaker. Um, I've kind of uh, parked a lot of the more ambitious systems change work for now. Um, and I'm in the corporate world um, as a partner in a mental resilience company, which feels right for me, given, you know, my own journey with my health and needing to really choose a kind of a work that's just more stable and more good for my health and, and ultimately better paid <laughs> than being an activist. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that there is a red thread, which is, I love this uh, quote from Charles Pegway, a French philosopher, Every, everything starts in mysticism and ends in politics. And I'm really interested in how you bring those two worlds together um, and bring more of the soul into politics and also into business and into organizations. You know, my current work with Tough Cookie, you know, um, at first brush it's mental resilience it's about capacity building skill building but really when people go through the course it's about creating a very intimate safe space where people can open up about their struggles and that is the medicine that organizations ultimately need and it's also what society needs so i think that that and i try and model that you know in, in everything that i do as best as i can so that's the kind of the red thread that that runs through my employment and academic history <laughs> oh, you're so fascinating really honestly I love this conversation already I love the work that you do with Tough Cookie and I, I think I want to deeper dive into resilience um, I think that's probably the most profound lesson that I could provide listeners of this podcast mm -hmm. today um, can you describe in a nutshell what is resilience and does it lead to a good life mm. Um, well, I think that when I think of resilience, I, um, I kind of, I, I kind of picture Sisyphus, uh, pushing a boulder or, a, up, up a mountain to the gods. And when he gets to the top, the gods roll the boulder back down and he has to start again. Um, you know, life is hard. It's full of adversity and difficulty and trauma. And then there's just the everyday complexity that we all face with um, and so we're constantly facing radical changes to circumstances 
uh, things we have to adapt to, massive setbacks. And then every once in a while, real shocks come along. And so the question is, how do you cope with that? Um, and when you, when you look into that question yourself, if I was to ask you, you know, how are you coping with the adversity in your life? How am I coping? Often there's some degree, if we're privileged of, okay, well, I've got good sleep hygiene. I know how to eat well. I exercise. I've got some stress management techniques in a mindfulness course. Um, uh, often there's a layer on top of that, which is we manage it with our addictions. So our addiction to our phones, to a glass of wine at the end of the day, um, to eating biscuits and carbs, uh, to regulate our emotions. And so resilience is about um, not demonizing that. All of them have their place, um, but understanding what are really sustainable coping strategies to deal with life. And there's a mixture of understanding the kind of the, the mental toolkit that you need. So Tough Cookie does a mixed mental arts program that teaches people the mental side of resilience. You also need um, really good and high levels of social capital. Um, again, the poet David White said, a dwindling circle of friends is the first sign of a life in deep trouble. Um, ultimately, we're interdependent and we need family and friends and community and rich ties of belonging to really sustain us through difficulty. Um, and then there are a whole host of practices and ways of designing your life for well-being. Uh, so either diary management, so you're not slammed with something or, you know, you're having pressures at like family work um, and in your relationship all at once and like practices for well-being. So like that's kind of, I would say, resilience 101. But then there's this deeper level of resilience, which will only be revealed to you if you go through prolonged, significant adversity. You know, they talk about the dark night of the soul um, and that hero's journey where you almost have to leave everything behind and go into the underworld and be really challenged. But you come out as a kind of a new person with a gift to offer. And I feel like that is a very, um, I would say, sacred initiatory space um, where, um, which can only really be understood by experiencing it. But I trust that everyone who's listening, including you, um, have had glimpses of that. And if not, they will in the future. Does it lead to happiness? I would say resilience is beyond happiness. It's just something we have to be given the particular dilemma of being a human, particularly right now. Fascinating. My, the first question that comes to mind on that is, I was going to initially ask, do you need to have experienced trauma to be resilient? And you, you can have clarified that by the second dichotomy or the second part of that dichotomy. But how do you measure how resilient you are then? Is it as simple as stripes? Uh, on the arm, like how do you measure your own resilience then? So I would say that trauma uh, is um, a significant, uh, significantly undermines resilience because ultimately um, trauma, particularly early childhood trauma, shapes the brain and the nervous system in ways that makes it over vigilant to stress and anxiety. 
Um, and so if, uh, if you've gone through that, you're significantly less able to cope with the anxiety and the stress that comes at you as an adult. Now, that's not to say that you can't heal from trauma and release it and learn really amazing coping strategies, but people who've experienced trauma are at a significant disadvantage in terms of resilience. Wow, really? I, I honestly thought it would be the complete polarized opposite. I often saw, and this is probably conceptual and completely false, but based on my own story, I, I thought my childhood traumas were almost like cold water therapy, elongated cold water therapy, where I would, because of this early exhaustive experience in my life, everything else was relative to that moment in time and therefore I was a more resilient character because I experienced very early on hardship just much like you would if you did cold water therapy you you feel that physical abundance of feeling in the morning when you go in the cold shower and therefore everything else is relative to that one moment in the morning I thought trauma and Mm. resilience was almost the same but you've just uh, proven me wrong well well, yeah I, I mean um I'm, I'm interested if, you, if to the degree you feel comfortable sharing what the nature of that trauma was, because I think that there are lessons to unpack. Um, so I, and I'm just curious more about you and, and you know, your, your own background and where you came from. I guess it was more so emotional negligence, negligence from my parents. Um, coming from this background, they had their own problems to face and they both mm. suffered from mental health conditions growing up. So I think I was a passenger of their circumstances so they focus more on themselves and what they were dealing with before they would deal with my sister and I's kind of personal development um that coupled with grief a few years ago um Mm. I I feel that's the kind of overarching um scenario that's kind of propelled me into this newfound need for recognition of achievement from others because Mm. I found actually one of the things I found about myself recently is I don't strive for achievement Ronan I strive for validation of that achievement from others, much like when I reflect on my story as a child, because I was neglected emotionally and academically as a child, my highlights of validation were when I went to a friend's house whose parents understood the school syllabus or understood how prestigious a KPMG offer was, and they would pat me in the back. Their parents would pat me in the back or school teachers. And now I find that transgress into the workplace. So when I won, for example, Best Apprentice at the EMC Awards or uh, 2020 Apprentice of the Year, it wasn't those significant achievements that gave me this feeling of accomplishment. It was the senior leaders in the organization stroking my ego and, pe- and shouting me out on newsletters that really fulfilled me. Yeah, well, I wouldn't pathologize that. I feel like all of us have that. Some crave recognition more than others. Um, I think it's just about like, you know, the, the kind of therapy work that I do is um, based on a thing called the diamond approach. I, I don't, we don't have time to go into it in detail, but ultimately it's about, it's about feeling the hole inside of us um, and the wound inside of us uh, and being with that pain and that difficulty um, until our kind of own innate worth and essence comes through. And then that gradually uh, takes some of the intensity out of the need for recognition, but the need for recognition is fundamental, um, and it's very easy to get into this um, pathologizing, 
beating ourselves up. You know, if I, if I was in your position now, you know, a decade older than you, um, I, I would also be probably the things that would stand out for me is the person patting. We fucking love people patting us in the back. It's great, especially if they're senior and important. Like, what a, what a buzz. Um, so the thing I wanted to maybe draw our attention to is that, um, is this idea of post-traumatic growth. And um, if trauma happens at the right time, um, where you have the support to integrate it and work through it, um, it can be really, really powerful. So for example, in the research, they say that uh, actually your early 20s is a really good time if you're going to experience significant adversity and trauma to experience it, because you've got a general level of physical resilience to come through it. And you generally have the kind of some life skills and are able to navigate and get therapy. Whereas if it happens when you're four or five, I lost my brother in a car accident when I was four, um, and you don't potentially have that scaffolding with your parents, um, you basically, you kind of bury it and can't integrate it. It sounds like what you experienced is something like complex PTSD. I'm sure there was also PTSD there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's like a lifetime journey to come to terms with, you know? Yeah, I found myself as a child having some sort of ambient resentment because I didn't have control. I, mm. I was at a point in my life where I didn't have control of my outcome, besides perhaps school exams. But then again, the distant future still looked foggy. But now in my 20s, when I experience hardship, I know I have social capital, leverage, um, other facets of my life, for example, a podcast to um, mm -hmm. put myself into if another aspect of my life gets hard. I know I have control and yes. an yeah. opportunity yeah. of misdirection or redirection, whereas as a child, I didn't. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how important essentially is your social capital as a child? Can, can you develop that so early on? um well i think that you know children it really depends on how young but children barely even have the sense making resources to you know un even understand what is going on at that critical age of development between three and five you know if if uh, your parents are incredibly stressed and you're looking for their attention and they cut you off it's because they're stressed they don't even have the sense-making capacity to understand that that's something to do with them. They just internalize it as I'm fundamentally unlovable um, or they connected to something earlier on the day when they were angry. So there's not a rational sense-making. Uh, and then they also don't have the resources. I mean, you know, ch children obviously in trauma ha who have to go out and, you know, look after themselves, um, um do grow up fast and they do learn these skills like i think you know i have particularly i'm adept at um what would i say like persuading uh people to like many leaders to to basically follow a vision i have or sometimes to do what i want to do and sometimes it kind of bleeds over into manipulation but that whole skill set um of being charming and knowing the right word to say I think that like that's often honed when you really have to go out there to kind of fend for yourself. Um, and the thing that I wanted to also respond to, you you picked up on a really crucial part of resilience, which is 
uh, agency. Um, uh, resilience stops when you feel like you don't have any other options and your mind is only presenting you a very catastrophized scenario. Um, and so they talk about this idea of psychological flexibility, that you can be in a situation that's difficult and have metacognition to understand what's going on and remove yourself, call in your resources, understand where your strengths are, and then operate and make a decision from that place. Um, and it sounds like, and, and then have the social capital to leverage the support that you need as a further layer on top of that. But it actually begins with being able to see clearly your options. This is why in coaching, you know, they get you to really uh, engage with the reality that you're in, but come out of the default or the first story you have about the situation you're in and see actually there's a new number of ways of interpreting this. There are a number of pathways forward, which pathway is the most energizing and follow that. Wow, what a lesson. I've heard you say before, you don't solve your problems, you outgrow them. What does this mean pragmatically? Mm, yeah, well, that was, uh, unfortunately, that's a Carl Jung quote, um, but um, I do say it a lot. I do believe it. You don't solve your problems, you outgrow them. Um, it's based on that idea that you can't solve a problem from the same level of thinking that created it because the very pattern is following you around. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I went through a severe burnout and health crisis after Extinction Rebellion. Um, it, you know, had so many different symptoms and, uh, and you can imagine the fear and the anxiety of being in a very difficult situation and wanting to be out of it. And so I applied my, basically all of the, things that were innate to me uh, to get out of it. So you can imagine like, I just like researched the whole internet about health and all of these different conditions, found the best doctors, you know, I, I became such an expert in health that I was often, you know, briefing a consultant on the NHS rather than the other way around. Um, and, you know, in my world, I was like, if I fucking apply myself fully in terms of will and intellect to this problem, I will solve it. Now, the problem is that that very intensity um, and the fear from which it was coming from was the thing that initiated the health crisis and also paradoxically was keeping me in it. Because think about how stressed the nervous system is where you feel like you're in a labyrinth and you can't get out of it and you're trying so hard and you're holding on so tight. And instead, I've had to grow out of that whole way of being and find a place of kind of relaxed neutrality. I have to be okay with the fact that I'm in a really difficult, intolerable situation and understand that uh, the way of solving it is by relating to it in an, from an entirely new place. And so that's the, the work that I have to do. So hopefully that illuminates the, the Carl Jung insight. 100%. If you don't mind me asking, what is the chronic health condition to bring it to life, if you don't mind me bringing that to light? I mean, yeah, 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 sure. I mean, uh, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I can say that I have a very reactive immune system um, uh, and a very dysfunctional gut. So if I eat anything, uh, most things, my body will like start as if it's like, I don't know, I've poured some kind of like acid down it. It starts reacting in a very um, aggressive way, heart palpitations, churning, really difficult, really sensitive. 
Um, I've got like really non-restorative sleep. So even though I might sleep for nine hours, I just feel really tired. Um, I wake up every morning in pain, have a heightened sensitivity. Um, my, I, my thesis is that like, it's kind of basically multiple systems going into dysfunction and then reinforcing each other in really uh, un, unhelpful ways. Um, my current thinking, I've tried so many different treatments. Um, you know, I've really worked on healing my gut, calming my immune system, like, you know, you name it, I've, I've probably done it. Um, I think that the thing that I'm really interested in now is this, which I didn't actually realize is a whole category of pain called noisoceptive, um, sorry, noisoplastic pain. And noisoplastic basically means that it's actually changes to your brain um, that have heightened the, the neural pain network and they have um, taken away from parts of the brain that might inhibit pain. And so potentially there's nothing wrong with me, so to speak. I just have an incredibly sensitive and nervous system because of an overactivated pain, which is either either comes from chronic stress and trauma, uh, or um, it can also come from a viral illness. And when I went to India two years ago, I was invited out there to meet the Dalai Lama, and I just got really, really sick. Um, and and I had like aching in the base of my neck and really bad fever. Didn't know what was going on. Never diagnosed. But then about a month after I woke up in bed one morning and I just, everything was different. So, uh, my current, I'm, you know, currently doing a lot of work on just basically rewiring my brain and like my daily thoughts and actions and behaviors that really painstaking work. And I'm also signing up for oxygen therapy, which is where you go into basically, um, uh, an oxygen chamber, uh, and you breathe hundred percent pure oxygen. And that basically allows, uh, parts of the brain, that have been damaged through inflammation um, or overactive parts of the brain basically to come into more balance and basically changes the brain. Uh, and this is seen as potentially a, uh, hopefully a, a good treatment. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's, I've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. That's basically just what they tell you on the NHS when they just don't know what's going on. It's just a description for a cluster of symptoms. Um, but yeah, it's like complete fuckery. It's like, so shit. I just, you know, sometimes I'm like, I cannot believe this is my life. It's just so unfair and frustrating and lonely and just like, what is this, you know, really like, yeah, but I found a way of kind of being with it in a way where it's it's hard but i'm still um yeah i don't know i'm still like relatively happy and have a, have a pretty great life it's like a funny one i'm so sorry to hear all of that it does sound absolutely it's one of those things that because i'm well and i don't suffer the day-to-day of this i can't even personify how that might feel and how my day-to-day would be impacted it's almost like telling me okay, David, you can be placed underwater, but you can breathe. But because I'm so used to being healthy and because I'm so used to being not able to breathe underwater, trying to envisage that is hard. Is there? Yeah, yeah there's a, just there's a, a Sudanese proverb um, that I always share with people, which is uh, health is a crown worn by those who are well, seen only by the sick. Um, and for me, that, Exactly. 
you you don't know you're wearing a crown you're wearing the crown of health uh i've i too have worn that crown and didn't realize it um yeah i mean it it is almost impossible to imagine um i kind of i don't know i maybe an example would be like for the people could relate to it if someone got covid quite bad there's this like really hairy moment where you're really debilitated you're five days in the fever is getting worse you're really really struggling and you're like whoa i'm being psychologically tested to my limits i feel terrible um everything's going wrong it's kind of like a low level version of that every day wow for like year, years on end wow what's the difference between yeah. physical and yeah what's the difference between medical resilience and emotional resilience because not everyone has a physical health related problem to solve some some of it's mm. environmental is there a difference between the type of resilience you need to overcome a health dilemma or an environmental dilemma uh i would say that um yeah i suppose what i'm hearing in that is that your environment can be compromised so like my body is my environment um and i can be or i could be in a wider environment i could be in a war zone for example um either one my capacity to function and be well is compromised um so you could be a very healthy person in a war zone you could be a very sick person in a war zone so you've got a double compromise uh either way you know it comes back to the same things can i fully be with my experience can i feel my emotions can i process them can i feel the stress can i process it um can i cultivate deliberately positive emotions like gratitude and compassion to give me a buoyancy um can i connect to a greater purpose that brings meaning to my experience can i see options where there are none at first sight um can i call in and ask for support can i set boundaries if i'm in uh, certain obligations that are too much it's an entire suite of soft skills that are missing have never been thought to us um that we now need to learn and you know the reason i'm working with tough cookie and with organizations is that organizations are the leverage point to basically get this training out to 80% of society because they're the ones who have budgets and it's in their interest and they have a duty of care um you know it's it's less likely to come from public services even though i would i would personally like that i think the role the state has a strong role in this but in the meantime uh organizations have the budgets to to make sure that lots and lots of people can can get this training that they and skill set they desperately need i completely agree with that one i'm just reflecting on like the kind of general lockdown that we've had we seem to have all i guess been somewhat resilient over the last 2 years or at least somewhat experienced perhaps trauma in the last 2 years now that we are kind of and i say kind of loosely moving out of this period of time in this post covid world are you optimistic about how people have developed during covid how well do you think they will use what they have learned in a intra covid world and a post covid environment yeah i mean i really don't know 
um, it's so hard not to just extrapolate your own experience and project it onto society. I think that um, I, I know I have seen some stats that a significant amount of people have turned towards spirituality and philosophy as ways of getting through. I do think it's been an initiatory experience. You know, if you um, subject people to a significant amount of vulnerability and stress, um, you remove them from some of their default contexts and coping mechanisms. They are required to grow to meet the challenges of their time. And I do think um, there has been a humanizing that has happened where things like things that are very fundamental to us, our health and, you know, the fears that we have for our loved ones are, have become more public. And so I think there's a greater permission space to talk about our struggles. Um, but, you know, I work with organizations day in, day out. And just what I hear is that people are at the end of their theater. They're at the edge of what they can hold. Um, and my fear is that we're reaching a tipping point of mass burnout that similar to my situation might be very difficult to recover and come back from. Um, and so I'm sure that people have adopted new coping skills and they've learned and they've grown, but also the cumulative uh, burden of everything that we've experienced can just get too much for people. Um, and we just don't know where it's going. Like, is it a post-COVID world? We don't know how Omnicrom is going to go, how lockdowns are going to be. It's really difficult to actually, yeah, probably out of the worst of it in terms of prolonged, very severe lockdowns, but it's it's uncertain. So, you know, it's this um, it's this balancing act between probably some increased capacity and skill set and increased burden. And the question is, where will the scales fall? And it's going to be different for different people, depending on how they experience COVID. You know, for some people, I was very blessed to be in the countryside. I didn't have people who were dependent on me. If I was living, you know, on a council estate in a city, couldn't leave apart from walking around the park, having to homeschool two kids, be on furlough. It's a totally different situation. You know, you know, I'm sure well from the social mobility network that the reality of what people have to endure is just it's crazy for and I'm sure many people who listen to the podcast um probably I would assume if they're listening to a podcast about development might could be quite removed from the the kind of the grind that people have to experience amazing one and with your work with Tough Cookie when you've been going into these organizations specifically looking at leaders are they typically resilient and the way that you would define resilient? Uh, no. So what they are good at is endurance. Um, a lot of the people that we train are incredibly good at white knuckling it, putting their head down, plowing on. Um, and I think that often they are surviving and doing that by numbing and distracting and avoiding and masking the symptoms with booze and carbs and iPhones. And they haven't actually, and, and there's a lot of disassociation going on, you know. Um, you can have, let's say, senior leaders who are like, I work 80 hours a week, it's fine, go to the gym, run it out, and it's all good. But actually, um, they're doing a lot of disassociating from their body, and they're doing a lot of, um, yeah, kind of numbing and distracting and avoiding. And often they look at the younger generation who I think are 
more in touch with their bodies and what's going on for them. And they kind of characterize them as snowflakes and overly sensitive. And actually, um, you know, the, there, there is a degree for the younger generation where they struggle with containment and like professional boundaries and having kind of grandiose expectations of what work is supposed to be. All of that is true, but they are actually modeling the essence of resilience, which is that you have to actually be with what is going on for you um, and, and open yourself up to that. That's the kind of the, the, the genesis of resilience is actually being where you are at, not in some fantasy fairy tale land where you're numbing and distracting and you're disassociating. Um, and so a lot of the work that we teach people is basically how to feel. That's the essence of the work is how to feel and how to respond to that in a way that is proportional to what you're feeling. I want to apologize to the listeners because I'm going to take a very individualistic uh, pathway on, on this segment because when I reflect on my, my own journey, I think I'm more like the senior leaders that you described. I was watching actually my trailer clips of the podcast I'll be releasing this Wednesday with Andy King from the Fire Festival documentary. And this man's a celebrity. Um, if I was playing the status game, then I would feel quite important uh, because I, I spoke to a celebrity. And I was watching this trailer clip back and I was just thinking to myself, David, that's, that's you. And I was thinking, but I can't remember having that conversation. And I was thinking, well, where was my mind? And then I'm thinking about the conversation with you right now, Ronan. I'm not thinking about what you've just told me. I'm thinking about the next chess moves that I'm making to piece this narrative together. So as mm -hmm. a podcast host, how can I be more mindful in this conversation? yet deliver a better outcome for the listeners yeah that's good yeah um i've done my fair share of podcast interviewing and being interviewed and um so for me there's two modes one is um yes this like strategic strategic thinking a couple of steps ahead how does the narrative piece through i often do that uh, there is another one which is a kind of um it's called presencing but essentially, it's really slowing down, bringing the rhythm and tempo of this conversation really right down to a sense of stillness. And it's really responding with what spontaneously is emerging and what moves you and trusting that that will be the compass for the conversation, um, which, you, which you are also doing. You're like you're moved by something. And then you just respond with that. And so the practice is to relax the anxious, anticipatory mind and trust that if you listen more with your heart and with your gut, there will be a natural kind of clarity as to where the conversation wants to go for, for the kind of the, the best of everyone. Yeah, a great lesson for me, Rona. Thank you. An observation that I've been having recently is when I hear or read on social media the problem of overthinking, people overthinking too much, I often think, are people underthinking too much? Is underthinking as much of a mental health symptom or uh, a tragedy? Because I see friends who are distracted by social media and iPhones who are consuming content at huge rates and I'm thinking how much of the thoughts that you have are your own 
And perhaps you are overthinking, but you're overthinking someone else's content. How much time are you spending in your own mind curating your own thoughts? Do you think that's also a bit of an epidemic? How many people are underthinking based on their consumption of content online? Hmm. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, we're always and always have received information. And that goes into our thought process and comes out uh, the other, you know, through some kind of filter that is our originality. Um, but if you're literally just getting wave after wave of impressions and images and memes and headlines and uh, you're either parroting them, parroting them or you're sending them on, you are essentially just a conduit for Facebook's algorithm. It's just kind of gone into your mind and body and gone out the other the other end. Um, and so, yeah, there is a real, you know, and I think the Center for Humane Technology is is doing some, and the Consilience Project are doing good work on this, but there is a hijacking of our cognitive capabilities um, and we are just being sucked into a very mindless world um and there has to be and it's super addictive it's really hard i, I edited um a report by the mindfulness initiative about mindfulness as a as a core capacity for dealing with systemic crises and challenges and you know the authors um were you know postulating that we need mindfulness to be able to pull ourselves from this addictive relationship but it's very very powerful like you know even i who's talking about all of these things you know i have a, a calendar invite that tells me to put my phone to bed like a child at like six o'clock every evening and I, it, I do it and i can get into momentum around it but it's so easy to be pulled and it's sad. It's sad that, like, you know, we're we're going to have this for the rest of our life. I can't really see there being this massive regulation on addictive tech. It's going to just be this, like, annoying and sometimes actually quite problematic relationship that we have to contend with. I want to almost end this podcast or start to continue to wrap up this podcast with a very open question on what you just said. Given the announcements of the metaverse, what are your general thoughts on the metaverse? Can we escape reality and escape hardship that we should be using resilience to overcome by venturing into the metaverse? Should we treat it like real world? Will we have the same socioeconomic disparities in that world? Will we have the same distribution of resources, political divide, all that stuff? What's your just general kind of pulse check on that? My pulse check is that um, any kind of new concept world will inherit the path dependencies of the old world. And so um, if we live in a deeply unequal society where there's racism and sexism and, uh, you know, a lack of wisdom, all of those things will be expressed in the new technology in the new thing um i'm sure that like anything it will afford liberation from some things and will be great for some people and then for others it will be an even deeper entrenchment in the general trap of technology um and you know i'm not a luddite 
uh, I do have some kind of like attachment to the real world and where we are. And I can also understand a society that was primarily virtual. Um, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, kind of a mixture of Rick and Morty and Midnight Gospel as like two reference points for that. Um, yeah, but um, I suppose I just worry about uh, people being born into that and it being so addictive that they're not able to pull themselves out of it. Me too. And the fact that, as we've discussed previously, parents might not have the resources to help those children either because they've become slowly accustomed to this world. Yeah, but, you know, who knows? Maybe there's going to be a metaverse primary caregiver that you can just insert your child into and they get all of their (laughs) needs for affection and attention and approval met. And it's kind of like somehow they've, they've worked out a way of people experiencing touch through the metaverse and all of a sudden their nervous systems are held 80% more times than two busy parents. I don't know. Could be someone should create that. That's what's needed. Ronan, I really want to put a lid on this box before we open it. What a discussion. I I want to wrap up with one last question. What's next for Ronan Harrington? Um, Well, what's next is... Um, I want. I I have written a draft of a book about my story, um, and I'm and I'm getting this kind of whispers to begin it again, um, and to really, and to really yeah share that it's quite vulnerable, and so I'm kind of weighing up what that is, but that might be what's next. Amazing. Whenever you have, whenever it's released, or you have a final draft, I would love to have a read because I just feel so solaced by your story. I'm not sure if I should ask this question. It's a question I always ask guests. Where can the people find you online if they want to connect? And if they don't want, if you don't want them to connect with you online, how can they have a piece of Ronan in their life? Yeah, I mean, um, well, they can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Ronan Harrington and LinkedIn. Um, if you just type in my name, you'll find me there. On Facebook, you'll find me there, even though I'm not much on Facebook. Um, and then I've released a lot of media content over the years that is probably on YouTube. Uh, Ronan Harrington, you can Google me. Uh, my website is ronanharrington.co. That's if you want to get me in as a speaker. So yeah, there's some there's some ways to engage with me. But yeah, feel free to, if you're, if, if um, yeah, if anyone's listening and they've been, moved or struck by what i've said to, to get in touch this is one of the most profound and favorite conversations i've ever had one and so thank you for stopping by yeah, my pleasure. Thanks,